Shut up and sit down. A competitive league like the NBA necessitates a zig while other competitors comfortably zag. We often chose not to defend ourselves against much of the criticism, largely in an effort to stay true to the ideal of having the longest view in the room. Welcome back to the Limited Upside podcast. Those are the words, some of the 7,000 words from Sam Hinkie's resignation letter. Mike, there's so much to talk about, I don't even know where to start. <laughs> but let's let's just start with zigging when other people are zagging, and then we'll dive right into Hinky. Screw it. Let's just dive right into Hinky right away. Uh, right. Last night, last night something big happened, Mike. The the process that I've been trusting for three years came to an end. Sam Hinky resigned as the general manager of the Sixers. Twitter accordingly blew up. I blew up on Twitter. Uh, everybody associated with the Sixers blew up. Uh, Wow, I don't even know where to start. So why don't you fire a question or two at me and, and try to get some thoughts out of my emotional pretzel of a brain right now? Why don't we let's start with this resignation letter, okay? So okay. he uh, he sends a thirteen page, seventy one hundred word. I believe that's what it is. I tried putting it through the word counter. Um, <laughs> seventy one hundred word kind of resignation letter addressed to the 12 equity partners of the 76ers. And to me, it, it feels like one of those like letters that we talk about sometimes where, okay, nobody, it doesn't, it's not supposed to become public, but it's sort of written in this way that it probably will become public and is probably beneficial to both Sam Hinkie and the 76ers to make it public in some ways. So, it almost like it is written to the equity partners, but I think there is a sense that it's sort of written to everybody. So he writes this stuff, and he probably spends what the first seven pages talking about philosophy and quoting all sorts of very famous people. Uh, he quotes uh, Abe Lincoln incorrectly, as it turns out, which I think Paraf- is hilarious. Par- paraphrases honest Abe, which is in itself ironic. He quotes Warren Buffett. He quotes uh, a lot of these great investors, uh, these great thinkers. Uh, and then, of course, he quotes people in basketball, and it it's, reads like a manifesto. And then I would say the second half sort of talks about what he's actually done with the 76ers. Uh, and I, I think the letter itself is funny just because it reveals what he was trying to do, and it reveals what I think was Hinky's central problem with the 76ers, and that is he has this philosophy, but he doesn't really have – the pragmatism and most importantly it doesn't seem like he has the ability to what we call managing up which is that keeping explaining what he's doing in a coherent way to a bunch of bosses that frankly don't like being ridiculed and being the stewards of a team that's 10 and 68 yeah i mean that's that's accurate i think the the concept or i should say the terminology of general managing there is a general component which includes everybody that's your players at the lowest rung the workers to the the top of the you know tier investors that's your 12 person group who we just talked about this letter was written to those are the investment bankers these are the businessmen who have made their billions in doing exactly what hinky was trying to do from a business standpoint with the principal uh uh, call it um, the pieces of the Sixers. That's the assets of both cap room, which he talked about, uh, their free agency component of adding players, the draft itself. H- you know, Hinky dissected, you're right, the first seven pages are 
like a uh, uh, philosophy 201 um, term paper, and they, they really do take you in a myriad of directions. But the final six, when he gets into the actual players that have played for the Sixers, his thought process behind the moves he's made, um, the other general managers' moves with, with which he has respected, um, are a lot more telling and definitely a lot more interesting to read and, and actually have concrete um, you know, uh, value to it. Whereas, you know, the, I think it's important to note in all of this that I think he probably started writing this a few days ago, you know, before, um, even probably before his interview with Zach Lowe, there's a lot of the same terminology used. If you go back and listen to the Lowe Post episode, he uses some of the same exact words, um, you know, even the crops analogy he uses in that podcast, he uses that in this, in this um, letter. So I think this has been something in the making for a bit. He was able to kind of articulate and in our inarticulate, I don't know what the right word is there, abstractly put a lot of different things into 7,000 plus words. But the one thing that definitely came across was that, and, uh, you know, we, uh, Ziller wrote a good piece on this today, right? It was that he's still sure he's right. And the mm-hmm. Sixers president, uh, I'm sorry, uh, management, uh, the chairman of basketball operations in Jerry Colangelo and the board, they think they're right also. So I want to ask you, Mike, before we get into the emotional side of this, how I feel as a Sixers fan, being let down, all of that, it, are they both right and both wrong in this situation? Yeah, I think this is a case where both sides can be – it can be true that Sam Hinkie had a sound philosophy that was cut short because the owners got tired of losing. And it can also be true that Hinkie himself was too rigid in his ideology and, un, and the unable – to express it in a way that made sense, frankly, for basketball. I mean, you look at a lot of this, and what's always said and what often happens to new owners that enter the league that have business experience, and I think may have happened here as well, is that what works in the finance world, what works in a lot of these other worlds where you are kind of playing the odds, it just doesn't work in sports. It's a very different sort of type of thing. It's very much about the players you acquire and the people – you put around them and there is a lot of luck involved and luck is not necessarily uh, something that is just a figment of life. It's the very kind of idea of the league itself. So you can't just kind of necessarily dismiss a strategy and say, well, we just got unlucky. I mean, that sort of is to a certain degree, you need pragmatism in this league because of the way people buy tickets, the fan base, whatever. And so I think that both are right to a certain extent. And you know, I, I think that's the lesson here is that this is an ideologue, frankly. At least it reads like an ideologue. It reads like someone, you know, who has these ideas but doesn't have a great way of implementing them. Uh, but you still feel a little betrayed by the Sixers with this move. And I, there's a really interesting piece on Liberty Ballers, our Sixers site, that kind of said that if you really want to wonder why the process ended, you don't look at Sam Hinkie. You look at these owners that, you know, even before this, just bringing in Jerry Colangelo and all, where really the writing was on the wall then. I mean, you talk about he didn't write this 13-page letter overnight. I mean, one reason is that he would have had to pull a hell of an all-nighter to do it. (laughs) Something I'm sure he's pretty good at. I'm just going to throw that out there. Right. (laughs) I mean, not to say that I haven't done that in my college life, but uh, (laughs) he had plenty of time to realize that, you know, they wanted to hire someone at this level and undermine him. so, but you still feel betrayed as a Sixers fan. Yeah, I mean, I do. I do. Um, I don't like the idea that he was uh, aggressively marginalized 
in hopes that he would step down. I think that's a coward's way for the Sixers uh, to go about this, to kind of to, to move him to the side in hopes that he would do just this. Well, Which, let, again, me, let, me, yeah, let me play devil's advocate. Uh, they could have looked at this and said, well, he has a really interesting perspective, but we need diverse perspectives. And, you know, as someone who has talked about the need for collaboration publicly ever since Colangelo got here, maybe – is it to a certain degree is Hinky kind of being a hypocrite by stepping down when they're hiring someone with a different perspective than his? Well, I think he was okay with Jerry Colangelo. I don't think he was okay with the idea of Brian Colangelo coming in. So right. Jerry has been an architect of a number of teams, Team USA. His track record speaks for itself. Brian's also speaks for itself, but in a much more negative uh, persuasion. Well, we can that, talk about that. I think. I think we'll talk about that later. I think sure, that, sure, but, that may be a little skewed. Okay, but we'll get into the Colangelo circle of nepotism that might that actually I believe is being signed into uh, being actually happening right now. But I'll say this: um, I do think there's something to be said about a slight touch of hypocrisy there. But when you're the guy accruing all of these assets, when you're the guy who's putting together this foundation for the future, which was really the last three years, which you had signed off on, everyone in the Sixers organization, and probably most importantly, the fan base was okay with this. It's not easy to tell Philadelphia fan base in any sport, Sixers, Flyers, Phillies, Eagles, that you're going to be bad. But the, the fan base here and the reaction today as I sit here in Philadelphia is angry because they did buy into it. They feel betrayed by the idea that the uh, that the you know Colangelo and the powers that be would would make this into a situation where they were okay with it to a certain extent and then kind of flip-flop right in as this this kind of page would be turned. Now, obviously, that is predicated upon actually winning a lottery once, or in this case this year, hopefully a top-two pick, which they have overwhelming odds at. But I think it's more important to note that they never lost the fan base here. This was strictly a decision made uh, at the upper echelons of the organization and not because of public outcry, which I think usually is how things to a lesser extent, are merged together. The fans are upset, there's a losing culture, everything comes together, the team's losing money. The Sixers weren't losing money. They were making a profit. He talks about that in his manifesto here. So I definitely think it's important to note that with the fan base being on board with all the assets, he, he mentions this. He says he leaves behind Noel, Embiid, Okafor, uh, Saric, potentially four first-rounders this year, uh, and, a, and the second-most cap space or cap room in the NBA, that is an incredible treasure chest for someone to take. And we'll talk about how Colangelo has used cap space on middle to lower tier free agents, uh, Landry Fields, in, in, later on in this podcast. But we, I definitely want to put that out there, that the vibe in this city today is that of being, uh, being let down by the powers that have moved him out of this. By, by calling him just the analytics guy, I think sell short what Hinky probably has at his in his capabilities. But I do think... And I will concede that part of being collaborative would have been to have someone, you know, a Colangelo or, you know, with the Knicks, a Phil Jackson, whatever the, the basketball lifer guy is, who does have 70 or 60 years of experience to Hinky only being, you know, what, 40 years old or whatever he is, 38 years old. Um, there is something to be said for that collaboration, which he does hark upon and which a lot of the CEOs that he quotes and executives that he quotes in this manifesto uh, their companies are predicated upon that very collaboration. Uh, you know, your Bezos or, you know, your various guys who have started your Amazons of the world. Um, collaboration is key, and you're right. Maybe he's not the easiest one to work with, but I don't think that necessarily means that he's against 
that that as a concept. Yeah, um, I, I do want to push back a little bit on this idea that uh, this Philadelphia was behind this. I think there was a very vocal group of Sixers fans that were behind this. Uh, I don't know what their ticket situation was. Uh, there's a silent, sort of the silent, I don't want to say majority, but there may be a silent plurality that actually is not against this, that there might have been market factors that we don't think about, just as a slight pushback there. Uh, but you, I mean, let's talk about what he did, because you yourself were getting frustrated this year. I think that's a safe thing to say. I mean, the team, I was. Yeah. The team is not, you know, the team has not shown a lot of progress, uh, even this year to the last two years, this year has been, by comparison, really a disaster, even related to how they played last year and the year before. Uh, so I, it does feel like this sort of has stagnated. And so I wonder uh, what could he have done to sort of change this that feeling? And, also, and then we can talk a little bit about like, well, okay, it's sort of been accepted that this was the way they needed to rebuild their team. Are we sure that's true? Let's start with just like this year. I mean, <laughs> what, what, I mean the, the way that they are in the, their state right now, things are not improving. And there are certainly cultural uh, kind of backsides to some of the stuff that has been done. And how much of that do you think played a role in this? And how much do you think it should have played a role? Sure. So uh, I think it, it did play a role. I think he inherited a 34 and 48 win team um, that there's not a single player from that roster still on this team and, you know, from 2012. Uh, and since then, they've been 47 and 195. The, the very um, real statistics of wins and losses, which again, he talks about in the manifesto is one way to look at success. Uh, and very much in this NBA, uh, I think good teams will go will predicate themselves on what wins and losses look like, and bad teams will say what the future looks like. And with 47 and 195, you better be able to say, well, at least we're moving forward with X, Y, and Z. And unfortunately, because the first move he made was the Embiid uh, draft pick, which, again, has given them nothing to this point, one of the uh, second moves he made was Sarich uh, in the draft uh, you know, the next year, and he hasn't played yet. So I do think there's something to be said for the expected value of what he did not coming to fruition. Um, but, but Mike, I mean, uh, from a very emotional standpoint, it is very difficult to watch this team play. Oh, they yeah. Don't, they I don't think play, so. <laughs> they don't play good basketball. They, they don't have players that you can see being on the team. My dad and I always talk about this. And I'll, I'll say nothing, nothing hurts my father more than the Sixers is that they don't even have guys on their team right now who will be part of the team when they are eventually good. Maybe Jeremy Grant, uh, maybe Ish is your backup point guard. Uh, you know? you're, you're saying as not Nerland, excluding like Nerland's yes, Noel yes, and yes, Embiid. You're yes. talking about the complementary players. Yes, I'm saying, I'm saying aside from the guys who he has drafted in the top five, you know, in Saric, whatever, was traded it for 10 and he was drafted 12 or whatever. Um, I'm saying aside from those marquee players, and look, I don't know how good Noel's going to be. He's, he hasn't player developed at all, and that falls under Hinky in some capacity too. The player development for the Sixers has been terrible. We talked just earlier about general managing. That includes everything, yeah, and that I, does include player development. Like, and, I think that's the central problem with, with yes. what has happened, is that he talks a lot about crops and the crops needing to replenish the crops, but they're being planted in very bad they're being planted in soil yeah. they're 
his crops are the plant that you stick right next to the heater and it (laughs) and dies i mean that's that's the problem and that's the thing that i think they they never really were able to kind of put into action and that is sort of now behind the scenes they are investing a lot in analytics and performance and training enhancements that I think are very cutting edge, but just in terms of what was on the court, the, the pieces never really fit because they had this philosophy of let's spin our wheels and kind of get people the best chance at a superstar without really thinking that like your superstar sort of grows organically with the right pieces around them. And I think it was only this year when they brought in the Elton brands and the Ish Smiths that they even started to think about that. And that I think ultimately is what Hinky's downfall was caused by is this, again, the ideologue that doesn't, it doesn't have any pragmatism. Yeah. I mean that, I think that is well articulated there, Mike. He is an ideologue. We know that not just because he literally said it in 7,000 words, but the entirety of the accruing of assets to eventually get that superstar. Look, uh, Houston got lucky when they got James Harden. There were a ton of atmospheric things happening in the NBA, including Presti probably being a little short-sighted about luxury tax, and, and a lot of a confluence of things came together for Houston to even land Harden. And let's be honest, they made a mistake in getting Dwight Howard. They'd be better right now with the room to have other players than Dwight Howard. I think we could agree with. Agree I, I mean, on that. I would say that was a decision that maybe wasn't a mistake, but did not work out. Okay, exactly. As and a, that, to clarify, and that, sure, and that right there, not a mistake, but something that didn't work out, is how I would summarize Hinky's entire realm or, or tenure with the Sixers. I mean, nothing he did. Zach Lowe asked, said this. I think you've won every trade you've made, but there's this component of uh, winning every trade you make. Um, but not necessarily ever having that mean anything because he wasn't trying to win games. He said, and I think they talked about this, there's this component of winning trades when other teams are trying to win games. And that right. very much probably helped the Sixers make the the Kings didn't know exactly where they were in their franchise's arc. And that helped us you know, get a right to swap picks a few different times. But the idea that you know he made a wrong move, I, I can't necessarily say he's made any wrong moves aside from should have picked Christophs Porzingis, and I'm, I think there was pressure from above him, which again is unfair. It's like he was given the well, keys. Well, we the don't car. know if there was, but, you, yeah, there, but it's possible there it's was. Possible. Okay, let's let's speculate for a second. Say that maybe there were some other influences. Now I will say that the analogy I would give you is that he had the keys to the car, but there was someone sitting in the passenger seat who had a brake that they could hit as well. And I I don't. That necessarily... sounds like every team, though. That's that's being a GM. That's yes, being a GM yes. with an owner, and that's part of the problem here. Is that yes, that's just the reality. But when you're trying to zig, when everyone else is zagging, like you got to let the zig happen. I, I think that's what, exactly what happened here. Is he he tried to really live and play out this zigging mentality, and eventually, you know, the norms of the NBA, the constructs of the hard numbers of wins and losses, got in the way of his abstract plan. And I'll say this, man: there is a vocal trust the process part of this city. And the only other faction in this city are the people who just want a good team. And when they start, and when and if they start, if and when they start winning, those people will come back regardless. That, you know, that's yeah. that's that's neither here nor there. And I'll I'll tell you the the single biggest thing that frustrates me, Mike. And I think that there is the worst place in any of the major professional leagues in America is the middle. Well, might be the, I think the in the NBA, place. perhaps well, because of no, the current I, in- tanking incentives, I would say, with the league. But, other sports, too, it's, it's not bad to be in the middle of the NFL. The next year, you can win your division. A team goes from last to first in, the, in a division. 
10 years in a row in the NFL, a team has gone from last place in their division, look at the Redskins last year, to first place in their division. Uh, in the NHL, you are a superstar young kid away from being a great team. Um, in MLB baseball, you build, you have a farm system, you have all these different ways to get better. Uh, and being in the middle means with six wild cards and 30 teams, you're not that, or six playoff teams from each side, you're not that far away. In the NBA in the middle, you can get stuck there for a decade through a whole lineage of players on your team. I mean, look at the Wizards right now, Mike. Yeah, well, I, 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 I think this I, – I, I sort of do want to take it away from this this because I think, I think it, the, the, the tanking incentives – I mean, if they just flatten the lottery next year, mm-hmm. then that goes away. Suddenly sure. it's not a big deal to be in the middle. I do want to talk a little bit about this idea of time. Mm-hmm. Uh, to speak more generally, we can talk. I, we could talk a lot about like the specific moves Hinky made, where he may have gone wrong. I'm not that interested in that. I think this uh, concept of time is very interesting. Where Hinky says he uses the example of the Warriors and the Spurs to sort of say that teams are where they are because of a decision that happened three years ago or four years ago, and you see this all the time. And sometimes you're just kind of playing catch up from a bad decision or you're reaping the benefits of a good decision. This concept of time is really interesting to me. Uh, How much time do you think is appropriate for a GM to have to execute their plan? Yeah, that's that's a good question. And I think... Uh, just real quickly, the example he gave was, he said, Golden State, um, which he did kind of, um, uh, he was a little bit of uh, a prognosticator of their success in his entrance to the Sixers when he was going for the job. He said, look, it's going to be pace, it's going to be three-point shooting, and uh, you know, he talked about that in getting the job for the Sixers. So I don't think he was wrong on a principal standpoint there. And then he talked about what how the Spurs three or four years ago positioned themselves to get LaMarcus Aldridge this past summer. So I think that time in this case was allotted to him. Now, I think it became, and these are the things that I'm not necessarily sure about, the conditions that moved the timeline up, but I think it's very clear that he thought he had at least the rest of this season and and into this draft and offseason. I think that part is clear. So I would say that I think a four-year window is a, a minimum for a GM. Call it a full recruiting class, if you will. But just the idea that the CBA and the NBA gets renegotiated. Every how many years is that renegotiated, Mike? I mean, it depends, but it will be six years, I believe. It'll be six years. Okay, okay. So I think that a GM should have at least uh, a majority of a full CBA to try to implement his economic policies and economic uh, decisions. And I think in what you have with the Sixers here, and, and this is where... This is where I'm not entirely sure, or I guess from my own fandom standpoint, I was okay with it. I figured if I've already given him three seasons of losing like this, what is one more offseason into next year? And if they come into next year and Saric is overseas and Embiid hasn't played a, you know, a minute yet, then I'm, then I'm thinking, okay, this isn't going to be the way it works. And, that's, and that would have been okay. I, just, I really felt like the full coming to... A full circle for Hinky was this next offseason with prop, you know, potentially qualifying the Lakers pick, the two other, the Heat and Thunder pick. It felt like this was the asset offseason, and now we're going to have another person end up making those decisions. We'll get into who that is. So I, I don't know. In my head, I think four years is the amount. I thought I think that's a proper amount at a at a minimum. For uh, but we've seen you know what, what Grunfeld's been with the. We talked about this in our Wizards post mortem. 
Grunfeld's been with the Wizards for, for over a decade, right? Or, yeah, close, uh, you know? 13, 14 years. 13, yeah. 14 years, And man. You, you bring up this idea of one bad thing kind of really hurting you. I mean, the two thousand for the Wizards, the 2011 draft uh, is just yes. killing them four years later. But we're not... We're not talking about the Wizards. I, <laughs> I think I think this is a you, you raise an interesting point. Four years, it seems like a long time. I think in a results oriented business. Yes. Uh, uh, and but I don't think you're wrong to say that because I think it it can. I mean, at what point do you get? Does your philosophy then have to kind of yield to pragmatism? Is sort yeah. of a question I wonder about. You know, at what point – so you see this all the time, I think, with rebuilding teams. I think you're seeing it in Orlando now where, you know, after a few years where you don't get the lottery luck you want. And that's, I think, what happened is the Sixers. I mean, I think yeah. if they have Carl Anthony Towns, we're having an entirely different conversation. Oh, God, I know. But you, if you don't get the lottery luck that you hope – at what point do you just have to kind of make chicken a chicken out of chicken salad, or what was you know the phrase I'm talking about? I can't. <laughs> yeah. At what point do you just have to d- make do with the parts you have? And you can get a good look at a butcher by sticking your head up a bull's ass, but <laughs> something like that. But yeah, yeah, no, I, I know what you're saying, man. At what point do you have to cut your losses and say, wait, we missed two lotteries in which we had the best odds or close to the best odds, and or there were three players and we got the fourth, or there were two and we got the third. A lot of that, look, the Sixers' history is, is you could circle a lot of different drafts. We had uh, the Evan Turner, number two pick, and, and, and there were better players to be had in that draft, but no guys that we could have qualified as we have to pick them at two, and they didn't think outside the box at that point. And for years, Billy King made the most obvious and bad decisions possible for the Sixers before going to the Nets and doing the same thing. So I think the jaded Sixers fan base, from having some terrible general managers, was saying, okay, it didn't work in the traditional sense by having a yes-man who's been friends with all the different agents, etc. Let's go for this analytics guy. Let's go for the next realm. But, man, sitting here in Philadelphia, as quick aside, we watched uh, Ruben Amaro not care about analytics, destroy the Phillies organization, and take them from a World Series champion to the worst team in baseball. We watched uh, Chip Kelly come in, put in a whole uh, regiment of uh, you know biomechanics and uh, analytics and take a good roster and make it terrible. Uh, and then we watched Hinky, but we were okay with it because I think what Hinky did was describe the process a little bit more honestly. He didn't well, say at least in the beginning. At least in the beginning, sure. And he helped, but he held on to those merits even through his resignation letter, still thinking, as you know, as Ziller put it, that he was right and they were wrong. And the Sixers, or you know, as an organization, could say we were right and he was wrong. Um, but to, to that timeline, I think I think that four years is an interesting number two, only because if you have four. Re- call them recruiting classes, but uh, sorry, I was going to say recruiting classes, but four drafts, that should be, especially when you're as bad as the Sixers, that should net you three or four at, at a low end two guys who can help move your franchise. And Hinky himself would admit you need to have one or two of those guys. He said it on Zach Lowe's podcast. So in not getting those guys, he was almost cutting off his nose to spite his face. What are your thoughts on that? The fact that, yeah, he had some bad lottery luck, but he also wasn't talent evaluating nearly at the level he needed to. And that potentially that's where the collaboration really would have helped. Yeah, I, I think the, the Okafor pick is a good example of where you just, at a certain point, philosophy be damned. You just have to pick talent and the right kind of talent. And that, 
you know, we'll see how that plays out. But so far, that doesn't seem to be a successful situation. You know, even someone like Mark, Michael Carter-Williams, yeah, for the 11th pick, that's pretty good value. But if you're going to take this strategy, you do have to be better than finding the appropriate value. You have to find more value. So yes. I, I think that's right. Um, so I would agree that at a certain point, you're just kind of doomed – the job is really about finding the best kind of talent. And if you can't do that, it doesn't matter what philosophy you have. Yeah. You're just going to fail. Uh, four years also, I want to – two thoughts. I think it's great that you mentioned the context of what has happened in Philly over the years. I think it's a perspective that is missed and that explains why Sixers fans have – so many have embraced this is that – the, the the organization has been very short-sighted over the previous 10 years, and it's refreshing to see someone try something different. So I think that's a really important point. Absolutely. And I think also with the four-year thing, it also coincides with the rookie scale pretty nicely. So I do think that's a good number uh, to the four years. Uh, I want to I kind of talk – let's move on. I want to talk a little yeah, bit about the, the Colangelo and what they do from here. Uh, um, yeah, yeah, hit me. I find the Colangelo first. There's a bigger story here, but just to talk about Brian as a executive, I find it ironic that he's not coming in at this stage because if you look at the Raptors and you look at their most important pieces, the Kyle Lowry, DeMar DeRozan, Jonas Valanciunas, Brian was much maligned throughout his Toronto tenure for uh, various reasons, but ultimately those three players, the core of the team were players that he acquired. He drafted DeRozan. He gave DeRozan a contract extension that at the time looked very uh, aggressive and has looked a lot better now. He traded mm-hmm. a first-round pick for Kyle Lowry when they were a lottery team. That was a controversial move in a lot of ways. He drafted Valanchunas when he couldn't come over for a year. That was an interesting move. And now Masai Ujiri comes in and sort of covers – is able to kind of fill in around the edges. But it, to a certain degree, he's taking credit for the work Colangelo did. I mean, you even look in Phoenix. He drafted Sean Marion. He signed mm-hmm. Steve Nash. He drafted Amari Stoudemire. That's the core of the team, and that was his work. And now he's coming in with an opportunity to build on potentially the core of the work that Hinky did. I find that to be very interesting and ironic. Yeah, no, you're absolutely right. You, you, you omitted a few things that he did on the flip side of that, which was Landry Fields' contract, Jason Capono's contract. Uh, I believe he traded for Rudy Gay. Is that accurate? Yeah, and, well, and then uh, there's Andrea Bargnani. I'm not, yeah, I'm not yeah, trying to say that he's perfect. I just, think, I just think it's very ironic that uh, this is. is a guy who's coming in that has sort of had the vic- is, was the victim of what he's about to be the perpetrator of to some yeah, extent. Yeah. I'd agree with that, and he looks just like Michael Bolton, so we have that going for us too. But uh, <laughs> I'll say this, man. Uh, I definitely think the larger issue is how this just projects, and let's talk about that too. They, it, we, in the NFL, they have the Rooney Rule, um, which is a, an important rule. It is that you, uh, you have to uh, interview a minority co- coaching candidate or GM candidate, uh, and you can't just skip over it and go pick someone from your inner circle. Like, I don't know, your son. I mean, there couldn't be a closer <laughs> inner circle higher um, and not only that, but they did this, the way these moves were made is that they knew they were pushing Hinky away and that he would probably, and in all likelihood, resign. Um, and so in doing so, they were able to cover themselves by not having a legit GM search. Um, I think one of the interesting components, uh, Liberty Ballers tackled this tremendously today, and their coverage has been stellar uh, throughout the season, which has not been easy, I'm sure, and specifically today, which was that 
if you put the Sixers job out on the open market, it is one of the most desirable GM jobs in the NBA right now for teams that don't already have very situated GMs, right? They have a ton of assets. They have the lowest possible expectations. You can only go up. You're likely going to have a nice time frame to work with. And with that being said, the fact that they had already kind of maneuvered to put Brian Colangelo in a place that Jerry had, had kind of colluded internally to move Brian into a place where then if Hinky left, then it would be like, well, we were going to hire him for this, so now he is the general manager. I find that to be really disconcerting. I think not only is it short-sighted and it goes in the face of looking for better candidates, uh, looking for potential fits that might make sense that have a combination of analytical prowess as well as NBA, uh, kind of the, the player, the eye of the game mentality. You know, we always talk about the eye test versus what the numbers say. And there's probably enough people out there at this point who have a combination. But I'll say this with, with Brian Colangelo, man, it just reeks of that, you know, born on third and thinking you hit a triple thing. And mm-hmm. I... I I can't stand that personally. Uh, there are tons of isms in the world that that are horrible, and nepotism is one of the worst. Um, you know, yeah. it, it just it, and it's not only does it reek of that, but it also it, it feels like this was in the works for months and months, and then the fans and Hinky were the last to know about it. And I really don't like the way that sits. And for a fan base who's been more than lenient with the last three plus year or you know three plus years now, I guess you'd say, or two plus years. Um, it, it, it really feels like this the transparency of, hey, we're tanking, hey, this is our, our plan, and then behind the scenes for this to be happening, it, it feels very counterintuitive. And I, I don't know. I, I don't like it, man. I, but I could not agree think, more uh, on this idea, the troubling aspect of how hiring is done in the NBA. I couldn't agree mm-hmm. more on that. Uh, I think uh, Vince Goodwill of, uh, I think it was CSN Chicago, had a really good piece advocating for the need for a Rooney Rule type of thing because since 2011, I believe the only two African-American people to be hired as a team president are Masai Ujiri and Doc Rivers, uh, and that, oh, that's it. And I think we're trending in the wrong direction. And Tom, Tom has done good work. Tom Ziller has done good work on this subject with coaching. Uh, and this is sort of the double-edged sword of sort of being aligned with your bosses and managing up, is that there's a tendency then to sort of for the – owners to feel just more comfortable with people like them, whether that's mm-hmm. their race, mm-hmm. whether that's their ideas. And, you know, look, Sam Hankey is a, is a white man, so this doesn't totally apply in his case. But I, I think there's some element of Hankey was different and that just made people uncomfortable that yeah. it's troubling. And I think this, this GM search to bring Colangelo, this is not the first time something like this has happened. Uh, sure. And, you know, this happened. I, I, the, I keep thinking about the the way the Bulls replaced Tom Thibodeau with Fred Hoiberg, where mm-hmm. they didn't conduct a search. Fred Hoiberg and Gar Foreman are buddies from way back, and they made a show about like, oh yeah, we're having an open search. Didn't interview anyone else, and shockingly hired Hoiberg. And as it, so far, that hasn't gone so well for them. And no, wonder, I, I, I totally agree. You wonder if uh, I think it's. It, it's twofold. I think, first of all, it's it's uh, wrong that there is not a diverse pool. There are many candidates that are not white men in front offices that deserve an opportunity that are not getting it. There are many that are that deserve it that are head coaches that are not getting an opportunity. Uh, but also, I think it, it you you have a tendency to hire not as than as qualified a person. Yes. Uh, when you do this. And, you know, we'll see what happens with Brian Colangelo. Like I said, I think he's done some things that are uncredited, that are very 
that have been very good. He has also, as you have noted, done some things that were not as smart. Uh, and I think his his review is a little more mixed, I would say, than his it negative is. reputation. However, I think that this the, the the point is correct. I mean, maybe not the one of the most attractive jobs, but there is a lot of nice groundwork that has been laid here. And I think a new a lot of people would be interested in being able to capitalize on the fruits of Sam Hinkie's labor. And it is disappointing that instead it looks like uh, Jerry Colangelo is going to just promote his son, someone he's already familiar with. Uh, and I think that that is a very dis- troubling trend in the league. Yes, yes. And I think there is a, a nice kind of analogy to be made here too, which, and Hinky talks about this, I'll just keep bringing it up because there were so many words said, he did hit some good points, is that, you know, people look at the Sixers like, oh, they have three international assets playing abroad. And, um, and the Spurs have 23. Uh, and the idea is that there is so much reach and scale to basketball now. It is a global sport. It is you can have uh, every year there are five or six mid-major tw- you know uh, college basketball teams that shake things up in the first round because there is so much scope to basketball now. There are so many pockets of areas playing it, whether that's Wichita, Kansas, or New York City. And the idea is that there's not just like. 10 guys who should be looked upon to have that next job. There's such a large, vast you know, uh, world of basketball intelligence, people to be interviewed, people to be picked and, and prodded and see if they're maybe the right guy. And to then just come right to the son of the guy who is the chairman of basketball operations, it feels so short-sighted and so narrow-minded that even if he is the right guy, it's not the right path to get there. Ironically, that, it's they, it's a bad process. It's a, yes, <laughs> it's, a, yes. it's, a, it's very ironic that you, you, you <laughs> may argue that the Sixers were had a good process that failed, and then now they may have a bad process that succeeds. And I'd be okay with that <laughs> <laughs> as a Sixers fan. No, you know, I, I think I think you raise this is a really it, I think this is a bigger discussion than the Sixers, and it's something yeah. that the league needs to start to think very carefully about. You yeah. know. It, there are some that argue that the Rooney rule has basically turned some of these interviews into a show, but yep. that I think is much better than what we have currently. And it's a troubling trend from a league that talks a lot about touts this diversity record. I think we're going in the wrong direction and I would like to see something like this and, you know, that would help put more minority candidates in position to be considered, uh, and maybe maybe they're doing some good things to kind of do that. I think this is a troubling trend that needs to get fixed. Um, yeah, yeah. So. And that's a that's a macro thing. We're talking. This is a a systemic thing. We're not yeah. talking about the Sixers here, although they did uh, just do this. But I'll say this, man. I still love the philosophy. I would do it all over again. I, I don't have any qualms about what Hinky did. I have said for years, and I still firmly believe this. Now, obviously, the lottery has something to do with this, but. The middle of the NBA is a treacherous, terrible place to be. There is no fun being the eight seed or the team who misses the playoffs by uh, by three or four games because you are not even close to who, how good the one seed is because you're not even close to how good the two seed is or the top hierarchy of the league. And my biggest fear, which I think will be realized, I'd say that if I was a betting man, the outcome for this Colangelo era is that they help promote us right back into the middle of the NBA, right where we were in 2011 as the eight seed knocking off Derrick Rose's torn ACL's Bulls in the first round, right before we were 34 and 48 the next season. And that is right back in that treacherous middle. And, and that's a terrible place to be when the youth of Golden State is staring you in the face and organizations like the Spurs exist and LeBron James is still in the league and Kevin Durant could come to the Eastern Conference 
God forbid. And then you're like, well, where are we? What, what have we accomplished in not just three or four years now, but five or six or seven years? Um, it doesn't behoove anybody in this league, in my opinion, to get stuck in that middle. And I still would do it all over again, tank with the even the probability or possibility of getting a Wiggins and getting a Carl Anthony Towns, like like what happened for Minnesota, who had been adding other complementary pieces. They're not far away. And it's because they did get Levine, because they do have Gorgie Jang, because they have guys who can be supplementary, nice components. And I find it very ironic. One of the key things that, that I took away from, again, Zach Lowe's podcast with Hinky, because it's such a nice place marker here, is he talked about glue guys and how important glue guys were for Houston's teams when he was there, because they had injuries to Yao Ming, because they had injuries to their best players. And yet every time we've come across a good glue guy, we've gotten rid of them, with the yeah. exception of Jeremy Grant here. Even even Sampson this year, you know, uh, who's, you know, Jakar is not a uh, a going to be a good player on a championship team, but he is certainly a glue guy for a Sixers team, and he's a good athlete who plays good D and serves a purpose on a basketball team. He's an NBA player, and mind you, we could have gotten rid of T.J. McConnell, but we kept T.J. McConnell so we could have four under six foot point guards on the Sixers, but let Jakar float out there. So <laughs> I do think there is something to be said for not fully even listening to your own philosophy that Hinky did kind of fall into, which is ironic for someone who is so steadfast in his philosophy. Yeah, that as a neutral, that's sort of my central disappointment with the Hinky era is that I actually, it's not like he had new ideas, but I, I intellectually, I was it was very interesting to see a team push this to its logical conclusion this idea that you know whether true or not like okay being in the middle with these current tanking incentives is really bad and you need more kind of bites at the apple i think the analogy sam used in that letter that i can't remember exactly because god damn that was such a long thing to read it was arrows <laughs> in the quiver i believe is what he used yeah i, I thought intellectually i thought this was all very interesting but ultimately it was doomed by I don't know if "breeze" is the right word, but just it was doomed by what Tom Tom wrote about today. This idea that he was so steadfast in his ideology that the execution really didn't work so well. There were opportunities missed, even yep. though they had bad luck. So that that is my central disappointment. I think Sam Lee was was a very interesting figure in the league. I hope he lands on his feet. I hope someone tries and perfects this model and does it better. Than, than the Sixers did. I think the NBA is sort of a more interesting place because of this, but ultimately it failed because I think there are factors, but I think Hinky himself sort of failed himself in a lot of ways, yep. and that is sort of my central disappointment. I think the, the league would have been more interesting if this had been carried out to its logical conclusion, even though there was so much scorn to the Sixers. Yep. And I hope that Hinky in his next job sort of understands the – Instead of sort of this 13, the, the idea that you need a 13-page letter to almost justify what you did, I hope he kind of takes a look and reflects on some of the areas that he could improve the philosophy going forward. Yeah, no, I agree. And I want to read a quote to you, um, uh, which was, uh, Though in reviewing the incidents of my administration, I am unconscious of intentional error, uh, and I am never, nevertheless too sensible of my defects not to think it probable, that I may have committed many errors. Um, and I find that interesting because um, that's not Sam Hinkie. That was George Washington stepping down as president of the United States, um, <laughs> but was also a good way to kind of sum up what Hinkie said 
in his 7,000 words, which just tells you the eloquence of George Washington, he was able to do it in two sentences, um, which is that he's, he was aware of the, the defects, but and again, in doing so, was not. So through the process, he thought he was making all of the right moves, but in stepping back and seeing the net of it, is aware of the things that potentially, and in this case, have gone wrong. And I find Indeed. it very, very interesting uh, that he wrote this 13-page thing. I think you said it best. This was like a 7,000-plus a, a word job interview. It was a very long cover letter. Cover letter, yes, for the, <laughs> next, uh, for the next team. And there will be another team. And there are, look, there are plenty of teams in the Atlantic Division that, that are in the uh, New York Brooklyn area who could use a guy like Hinky to help move things in a different direction. Um, there are plenty of teams uh, over in the state of California that could use a guy like Hinky to help move them in a different direction. But if that's a standalone job, it's going to be, and I think we would agree here, probably a few years till he's a, a general manager again or in if, a similar general ever. manager president. Yeah, if ever again, right. Yeah. And he was important to note, he was a GM and president of this team. Two very important roles all in one. Um, and may have bitten off more than he could chew uh, in in the end. But yeah. um, uh, real quick before we before we end, I'm just curious sure. what you want to see Brian do uh, now that he has the reins. Yeah, sure. So I think that every team in the NBA is going to be preying upon the very soft Bulls right now. I mean, they have Jimmy Butler, and that is a, an incredible player who could make a lot of teams better. But I do I I do want to be honest here. I don't want them to go and spend any of this cap room on any middle tier guys. I don't want Ryan Anderson. I don't want Harrison Barnes or Fournier or Bazemore. I think these are capped potential players that are going to take so much money uh, than they're actually worth. So the their value, again, they'll be the antithesis of a hinky move. I don't want that to happen. Um, but I will say this, man. I, I don't want them to then take a bunch of these picks right now, uh, which they have this year, and take more European players and stash them. I'd like to see them start to qualify some players to take a, an actual uh, a, a dive into this draft and pick the guy at 23 or 27, maybe Thon Maker, and you know later in the first round, who could be a difference maker. One of the biggest issues throughout the Sixers' last uh, four or five years is that there have been plenty of good players, uh, Giannis, uh, Paul George, who have been picked 10, 12 picks after the Sixers have selected a guy who is not nearly as qualified or good. So I think, I hope, I should say, that Colangelo, uh, the Colangelos together with the same kind of you know uh, mindset that they got DeRozan, that they found Lowry, that they saw through the five high schools in four years for Amari Stoudemire, that they actually talent evaluate properly, which has been the strength. Colangelo uh, Sr., Jerry that is, has an eye for putting teams' chemistry together. Uh, that's why he was the architect of Team USA. Brian at least would appear that he has a good eye for the draft, uh, aside from Barignani. Um, so with that being said, man, I, I want to see them hit the picks this year. I want to see them get two, two guys who can play for the Sixers in the long run in this draft and then not waste their money on those middle-tier free agents. Wait till the next class where it really gets good. Yeah, I would agree that they need to be careful about dipping too much into this market. It's possible what might happen is that the decision will be made for them mm -hmm. and that nobody's going to want to go there anyway. 
That's true. I mean, that yeah. that may, I think the most important thing is they just need to start looking at this like a basketball team and not, you know, penny yeah. stocks. And that is to say, don't be afraid to trade Jalil Okafor or Nerlens Noel because they don't fit. You know, pick the guys you really want to build around and yep. look to maximize them. And that will include yep. their draft picks. And if they decide that there's a draft pick that they need to build around and their pieces do not fit, they should not be afraid to accept lesser value in order to improve the whole. And that, yes. that, I think, is the number one thing they need to do. They need to start thinking about, you know, does this player fit with our talent? And how do we how do we get the most out of these players? Can we get the chemistry right, like you said, but also can you get the on-court chemistry right? That, that to me, is the number one thing that Hinky failed at, and that's what I'd like to see the Sixers do going forward. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. And then I'll also say the two things completely out of our hands. We need Sarch to come over and play NBA basketball next season. He's been one of the two, three best players in Europe now, three years in a row. That's plenty. He's proven he's better than these 30-year-old non-athletes that play in the Turkish League. Needs to come over and play in the NBA next season. Secondly, and this is ultimately Hinky's entire legacy, Joel Embiid has to play for the Sixers next year. And he has to play games for the Sixers, not dribbling the ball with Ish Smith pregame and then going to Cutter to get his footwork done. Um, I, those two things are so central and important to this team, and they are completely, uh, to an extent, out of the hands of, of the Colangelos and very much uh, will, again, be the legacy of the aforementioned Sam Hinkie. So uh, if, if you can tell me that next year Saric is playing and Bede's getting 20 minutes a game, and everything looks good for his foot. Noel's developing some semblance of offensive game and confidence on that end of the court. Okafor's knee is fine, and this is all just a little hiccup, and that he's going to continue to slim down and mature into his body, and that they get two or three or even four first-round picks this year that they actually qualify and use. Uh, I would tell you that I don't even care what they do in free agency, and that that alone is as strong a core young foundation as you could ask for, and as a fan, I would be happy. Okay, well, let's yeah. let's let's wrap this thing up. I think this is a good, interesting therapy session. I think <laughs> I think uh, I think the NBA will be less interesting now that Hinky is not running the Sixers. I will say that much, uh, and I will miss that. And I hope he comes back. But it's time to move forward. And you know, I as a fan of someone who wants everybody to succeed, I'd like to see the groundwork being turned into something and hope the crops will start to grow and we can go from there (sighs) thanks mike appreciate the uh, therapy session here we've done a wizards therapy session we'll we'll do a bulls therapy session moving forward in in like next week sometime uh so i needed this especially after last night Um, i appreciate it uh, find this podcast on uh, iTunes, Limited Upside, subscribe to us, give us some reviews, that way we can get higher up onto the uh, the NBA podcast realm, the sports podcast, uh, rate us, find us on SoundCloud. Um, this should be going up shortly today, uh, so we can stay relevant on the Hinky News, and uh, until next time, from Ben and Mike, a very sad uh, Limited Upside podcast. Limited Upside podcast.